Turn to Psalm 20 real quick. Psalm 20. And I want you to read with me verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 20. And David is the one who wrote this. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. So here's David, the man who wrote these very verses. And now he's afraid he doesn't have enough fighting guys. You see, David knew better. He knew that the Lord would take care of him. He knew that he was the Lord's anointed. And he even said in his psalm, the Lord saves his anointed. So why does David do this? I don't understand really as I read it. I'm thinking, David, you know, you know God has done this for you time and time again. Why all of a sudden would you switch from doing it God's way, which so often you looked for, and now decide to do this man's way? I want you to listen to what David Guzik says about this. He says this. The principle of Exodus 30, verse 12, speaks to God's ownership of his people. In the thinking of these ancient cultures, a man only had the right to count or number what belonged to him. Israel didn't belong to David. Israel belonged to God. It was up to the Lord to command accounting, and if David counted, he should only do it at God's command and receiving ransom money to atone for the counting, which was that whole principle that we read about. I think David Gusick hits it really on the head here. You see, David's acting as though Israel belongs to him, not to God. But you know, before we question David too much, I think we should be asking ourselves a couple of questions here too. When it comes to us, when the enemy starts putting things in our mind that make us question God's love or his care or his ability to take care of us and provide for us, when the enemy comes to us and tempts us that way, do we resist him, as the Bible tells us, or do we allow ourselves to be lured, that same word that was used in James? Do we allow ourselves to be lured by the enemy into thinking, Maybe this time God won't provide for me. Maybe this time he's just not caring about me as much as he usually does. In David's case, you know, what might have lured him, what might have attracted him was, I think, the desire maybe to feel safe and secure and protected. Now, I can understand that about David. You know, we have followed David's life through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And he's gone through a few things, hasn't he? He's been, you know, chased down by Saul first and kicked out by Absalom. And, you know, he's gone through a lot of stuff where his uh, feeling of safety and security, I remember all the way back in the 1 Samuel when King Saul would throw spears at him while he was playing for him, you know. Uh, he probably didn't feel too safe and secure there. And he probably, here he is at the end of his life, he probably just wanted to finally feel some peace and safety and security. I think he had that desire. And I, you know, I would say there's nothing inherently wrong with that. You know, I have a lot of people come into my office and they say the same thing. I just, you know, I'd like to feel some peace and security in my life. The problem is, 
that if we look to anything or anyone other than God for our safety and for our security, we're looking in the wrong place. You know, we're quick, I think, to put our sense of security in things that we own or even relationships that we have. But the problem is those things can change at any minute. And they often do. You know, I was thinking back about 10 years ago when the whole economy just tanked. Do you remember that? I certainly do. I, I remember that, you know, real estate values went down 50 to 60% in, in less than six months and uh, happened to just be a part of that. You know, bought a new house the month before it tanked. The first month after we bought that house, our property value went down 20%. And then it just kept going and going and going. And then remember what happened to the auto industry at that time? I mean, they were trying to give away cars, for goodness sakes. If anybody could get a loan, the problem was nobody could get a loan. But if you had cash, boy, you could, you could make a deal. And, and then remember cash for clunkers? You know, I mean, they were trying to do anything to sell some cars. They, they couldn't do it. You know, during that time, many people found themselves out of work for extended periods of time. I remember praying with so many people right here in this body who were out of jobs for a year, some more. And maybe they lost their homes. We had people that did. And we had people that lost their cars. They got them repossessed. They couldn't afford them anymore. But I'm going to tell you something. One really good thing came out of this particular period of time. And that's this. There were many believers, even people in this body, who had become too secure and too comfortable in their things and in their, their comfort, their comfort. And a lot of those people came back and said, you know, I've been trusting in everything but God because life's been good. I've been okay financially. I've had a job. I've had this. I've had that. And I, I see now where I let that be my security. And now I don't have any of that. And i got to put my trust back in the Lord. And that's a good thing. You see, they had put their trust in horses and chariots, but just a different kind. Well, in any case, it's unfortunate here that Joab does not talk David out of doing this. No, he can't. David's the king. He's just a commander. So Joab does what he's told. He follows David's orders, and he and his captains go out to count the people. So we'll pick it up here in verse 5. It says, they crossed the Jordan and camped in Aror on the right side of the city that is in the middle of the valley of Gad and towards Jazer. When they came to Gilead and to the land of Tahim Hodshi, then they came to Dan John and around to Sidon. And they came to the fortress of Tyre and went to all the cities of the Hivites and of the Canaanites. And they went out to the south of Judah to Beersheba. Verse 8, so when they had gone about through the whole land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of the nine months and 20 days. And Joab gave the number of the registration of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, fighting men. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. So here they are. They've been out almost 10 months. And I want you to think about this. It seems like an awful waste of David's resources to have these guys out for 10 months to count these people. But they do all their counting, 
And the total comes in 800,000 in Israel and 500,000 in Judah. That equals 1.3 million guys. That's a lot of guys. You know, that's a lot of men. Uh Uh-oh. Another one of those pesky little discrepancies here. Why do I say that? Well, if you go to the parallel account, 1 Chronicles, it tells us that the number was 1.1 million in Israel and 470,000, not even including the Levites, which were the priestly tribe, and the Benjamites. All right, once again, what's the explanation here? Why do we have this discrepancy here? Well, one possible explanation, and this is according to the Bible knowledge commentary, is this. You have to listen a little close to follow this one. The reconciliation of the data may lie in the possibility that the 1.1 million describes the grand total for Israel, including the standing army, which consisted of 12 units of 24,000 men each, which equals 288,000, plus 12,000 especially attached to Jerusalem and the chariot cities. These 300,000 subtracted from 1.1 million would yield 800,000. Okay, so there you go. And in 2 Samuel, uh, the figure in 2 Samuel 24, 9. Also, the chronicler may not have included the 30,000-man standing army of Judah, whereas they were included in 2 Samuel. And this would raise the 470 of Chronicles to the 500 of Samuel. All right. That's a possible explanation. Probably good. I don't know if you could track down those numbers and say that's 100% accurate. Um, to me, again, it's, it's not that important of a thing. I know there's an explanation that's the exact right explanation. You see, here's the thing about all these discrepancies that people want to come up with and try to challenge you with. How many of them have you been sitting here in this church and listened to them easily explained by the pastor up here? An awful lot, right? So, you know, when you get to 15, 20, 25 of these things where people have gone, oh, here it is, and the pastor explains it up to you, or you get a good book and it explains it to you, or you read a commentary, it explains it to you, you know, that should give you confidence that even if there's one where you're not absolutely sure, that there is an explanation. And guess what? This is God's word. I can promise you there is an explanation whether we know what it is or not. And maybe we won't get it here, but when we're face-to-face with him, you can ask him the question, and he'll have an explanation and go, oh, duh. Because it's the truth. It's God's word. In any case, here is David, and now he has his number. And I want you to look at this, because as soon as he gets the number, watch the reaction that David has here. So 2 Samuel 24.10. Now David's heart troubled him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. And again, you know, we look at that and we go, gosh, David, how did you do that? How is it after all that you've been through and knowing what God's done for you, how could you commit this sin? How could you, as you even said yourself, act so foolishly? Well, we can say that until we just take a look at ourselves, right? When we look at ourselves, I think we would have to admit that we do exactly the same thing that David did many times over. I mean, how many times do we take things in our own hands 
rather than trusting God? How many times do we even take action before we've even sat down and prayed and asked God, what should we do? We think we have a solution. We think we know what to do. And we can look back and go, you know, God's continually come through for me time after time after time after time, and yet I'm still tempted to take things into my own hands and do it my way. But here is what's really neat about this, because we see a change that's taken place in David. Here's where we see that David has really grown in his relationship to the Lord. You know, we, we always hear, well, David is a man after God's own heart, and he was. But you know what? That doesn't mean from beginning to end he had it all down pat. He had to grow in his relationship just the way that we do. In the past, as in the case of his sin with Bathsheba, he did not quickly repent. Instead, what did he do? He tried to cover up his sin. And, you know, I find that very interesting when I, when I read that account. You know, David as king, he didn't have to try to cover up his sin, for, at least for the people's sake. He wasn't doing it for the people because in that time and culture, a king could basically do whatever he wanted. And remember, when, when the children of Israel asked for the king, they wanted a king like every other nation had, Right? That's what they said. Well, all the other kings would do that. They'd take concubines. They'd, you know, take any, any female they wanted into their, into their home. They could do what they wanted, and people would accept that. So who was David trying to cover his sin from? <laughs> well, who else? But the only one that he couldn't cover it from. And he went to this elaborate ruse. Why? To cover up his sin from God? How foolish is that? But there again, we can ask ourselves the same thing. Don't we do that? Don't we sometimes try to cover up our sin and hide it from God? You know, we sin and then we do it in a little bit different way. What do we do? Well, we kind of stop praying or maybe we even stop going to church for a while. You know, we kind of stop communicating with God, thinking, well, if I just kind of stay away from God and the people of God, you know, maybe he'll forget. Now, we don't really... You know, think that it's just kind of a subtle thing. But it's like, well, if I don't go, I don't have to face anybody. I don't have to feel accountable. Maybe God will forget about it. Or even worse, sometimes we try to talk God into accepting the justification of our sin. And, and our, of course, very reasonable explanation of why we did what we did, right? Really, God... I was just borrowing that $10,000 deduction that I falsely claimed on my income tax. I was going to pay it back in next year's filing. Or, Lord, I, I wasn't really looking at the picture of that half-naked girl in the advertisement. I just wanted to find out what they were selling. <laughs> Quit laughing, ladies. You're next. You see, Lord, I just shared all that personal information about my friend so that we could pray more specifically for her. <laughs> we oftentimes try to justify our sin rather than confessing our sin. But this time David doesn't do that. This time he immediately repents of his sin. He doesn't try to cover up. He doesn't try to hide it. He just realizes, I, I blew it. And notice here that he's concerned about the consequences of his sin. And as I said, sin, repentance, but consequences. 
And we'll see that there are going to be some severe consequences. So verse 11. When David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and speak to David. Thus the Lord says, I am offering you three things. Choose for yourself one of them, which I will do to you. Verse 13, So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or there will be three days of pestilence in your land. Now consider and see what answer I shall return to him who sent me. You know, I read this and I go, man, this is, this is really interesting. God is offering David a choice of his consequence. Now, I don't know if you've ever done that as a parent. Have you ever done that? I know I, I've probably done that as a teacher. I don't know if I did as a parent. But as a teacher, you know, maybe said to a student, or maybe you said this to your child, well, what do you think your punishment should be? Anybody ever done that? I'm not sure it works very well. You know, if my parents asked me that, I would say, oh, this lecture you're giving me is punishment enough. You know, I, I would have a, a good choice for that. Well, anyway, God doesn't give David any choice. He gives him three choices. And I have to say, God's never done that with me. I don't know if he has with you. But he does that with David. So what does David choose? Verse 14, he says, Then David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. And I'm sure he was. I'm sure he's in great distress because I think he knew that this was not only going to affect him, but whatever choice he made, it was going to affect other people. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord. See, he says, let us, not just me. Let us now fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So you see, David makes the choice to just the three days of pestilence, I know God's in charge of that. He doesn't want to get turned over and have to flee again. He's been down that road before. And he knows that men are not merciful. But he knows that God is merciful. So he chooses an option to where he believes, okay, I'm just putting this all in God's hand and, and I'll take option number three. Verse 15, So the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And 70,000 men of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who destroyed the people, It is enough. Now relax your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking down the people and said, Behold, it is I who have sinned, and it is I who have done wrong. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and my father's house. So 70,000 people, now this was in three days, perished by this pestilence. And I want you to notice something here, you Bible students. Notice it's an angel who's the agent of judgment here. And that's not an unusual way that God judges people. He uses angels many times to administer his judgment. 
which is why when you go to the book of Revelation and people want to make it all figurative when they talk about angels doing this destruction, no, God has done this before. We see it oftentimes in the book of Revelation, and we should take that literally. This was an angel that God used to, to do this pestilence, to bring this pestilence about. Another interesting thing to note here is that it says David saw the angel who was striking down the people. What? David saw the angel? Now, does this mean that maybe he was just aware that this was an angel doing it? Or did God actually allow David to see in the spirit? Now, we don't know for sure, but as for me, unless I see a reason not to take something literally, and I don't see that here, I'm going to take it literally. I believe that the Lord allowed David to see in the spirit and see the devastation that was brought on by his sin. Now, I can't say that I've ever seen an angel at work, but you know what? I know people who say that they have, and I have no reason not to believe them. And I can say with almost 100% certainty I haven't seen an angel, but I've heard angels sing. Okay, let's stop that look that says, this guy must be out of his mind here. What do you mean? You want to hear the story? We have time? All right. I'm doing a men's study one night, and we're just doing the worship. And it's just a beautiful time of worship. One of those times where you just feel the presence of the Lord so strongly. And the guys were all having our eyes closed and everything and, and, and singing the song, and I'm leading this song, and I'm going, you yeah, know, these guys sound pretty good. And then all of a sudden, I, I think, wait a minute. I hear these female voices. I'm like, oh, the ladies must have come in, and they're in the room next door here singing along with us. How cool is that? You know? And so I just keep playing. I don't think of anything. But, but then I open my eyes for a second, we're getting towards the end of the song, and one of our guys is walking around in the room from corner to corner to corner, and he's doing this. And I'm looking at him and go, hmm. So we finish the song, and we all open our eyes, and I mean, it's dead silence. It's like nobody wants to say anything to anybody else. We're all just looking at each other. So finally I say, did you guys hear anything? Uh-huh. What did it sound like to you? It sounded like a bunch of females joined our chorus. I asked the guy who was walking around and around. I go, what were you doing? He goes, I was trying to find out where the singing was coming from. I go, did you look in the next room? There's nobody there. Now we're all kind of getting goosebumps. And finally one of the brothers said, I've heard this once before the angels were singing with us. I have no other explanation. I know God does things like that. And I want to tell you, it wasn't us guys because we don't sing that good. I promise you that. So you can take that for what it's worth. If you think I'm crazy, that's okay. Other people do too. In any case, what we do see here, and I think the important thing is here, we see David's shepherd's heart. Remember that David is not only a king. He started out as a shepherd. He knew how to care for sheep, and he knew how to care for people as sheep as well. And he had that shepherd's heart. 
And he's saying here, look, I don't want everybody else paying for my wrong, for what I did wrong. And you might have been thinking the same thing. Why is God punishing others for David's sin? Well, I think there's some things for us to learn here. Number one is we need to be reminded that when we sin, we never sin in a vacuum. We can say, well, it only affects me. No, I don't know. There's hardly any sin at all that only affects you. Almost every sin you commit, it's going to affect somebody else in one way or another. It always has consequences for other people, too. But we can also go back and look at the first verse. Remember what it said in the first verse? God was angry at those who chose to rebel against his anointed. And God is going to bring judgment against people. And as I read this, I think, is it possible, and I think that it is, that the ones who perished were the ones who had joined in Absalom's rebellion? We're not told that. We don't know that for sure, but we're also not told anything different. It's possible that those were the people that died by the pestilence. But it's also possible that other people got caught up in the uh, fact that, that David had sinned and it had led him to do this, and God used that to bring judgment against Israel who had rebelled against him. You see, there again, when I don't know for sure, I go back to what I do know. And I do know this. The scripture is clear that God is just and fair and that his judgments are true and righteous. Amen? The Bible is clear on that. So what God does, I know, it may not seem logical to me. I may not be able to understand it. But I know that God has a reason for everything that he does and it's true and just and fair and righteous. And I believe that God just used David's folly to bring judgment upon Israel. And that's what God does, you know. He orchestrates in a way that we can't understand. So the consequences, as I said earlier, of Israel's rebellion were very severe. 70,000 men, and that's the other reason I believe it might have been the followers, because it says men died. Verse 18, so Gad came to David that day and said to him, go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. David went up according to the word of Gad, just as the Lord had commanded. Verse 20, Aruna looked down and saw the king and his servants crossing over toward him. And Aruna went out and bowed his face to the ground before the king. Then Aruna said, why has my Lord the king come to his servant? And David said, to buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be held back from the people. Verse 22, Aruna said to David, let my Lord the king take and offer up what's good in his sight. Look, the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges and the yokes of the oxen, the wood, everything, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you pretty generous offer. He's going to give him the threshing floor and everything he needs uh, to do this. Verse 24, however, the king said to Aruna, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. 
Thus the Lord was moved by the prayer for the land, and the plague was held back from Israel. So we see here that David's instructed to build the altar. Now why? Well, this was a common practice. It was done to bring offerings and sacrifices to the Lord for different and varying reasons. And we're told here that David offers first a burnt offering. Now there are several types of burnt offerings. This one appears to be what they would call a free will offering. And it's similar to when Hezekiah rededicated the people um, to the Lord. So it'd be something like a, a believer who maybe has been backslidden and knows they've done wrong and you know they've repented, they've turned from their sin like David's doing here. And maybe they walk forward at an altar call and just say, I want to recommit my life to the Lord. They're taking an action which speaks to the Lord and says, I'm turning back to you, O Lord. It, it's something like that. And then it says he gave peace offerings. And uh, peace offerings were given for three different reasons. One is just thanksgiving and gratitude. Two was when they were fulfilling vows, they would give peace offerings. They, you know, they took a vow um, to complete something, to do something, and then they would bring that peace offering. And then thirdly, it was similar to the burnt offering. It was a free will, something that you just spontaneously gave and devoted to God. So these are the kind of offerings that, that David's bringing forth. And, and maybe we don't know for sure exactly what was going through his mind about which offerings he was doing. What we do see here, I think, is an important principle for us. See, David was offered the threshing floor and the oxen, to be sacrificed all for free, but he wouldn't accept. And why? He said because he wanted this to be a sacrifice. Now, um, in a sense, some people would read this and go, oh, it's appeasing God because it says then God took his hand off. But I don't think that's what's happening here. I think what's happening here is that he's offering a free will offering to God and he wants it to cost him. He wants it to, as a part of saying, I'm not just doing this you know, because it's easy, I'm doing this because it's costing me something to do this. And I think we can do this in a lot of different ways. I was just sharing with someone, I think when we fast and pray sometimes, that's, that's like a free will offering. And, and we don't do it because we think, oh, uh, there's some method to this and that God has to respond and he has to act. No, what we're doing is we're saying, this is costing me something. Now, I don't know about you, but I hate to do food fasts. If I say, okay, God, I'm fasting for any time, even this one meal, he goes, you're serious, huh? And I go, yeah, I'm serious about this one. Now, I mean, I give up a lot of things, but giving up food, not fun. So David's just saying, it needs to cost me something because I want God to know I'm serious about this repentance. I'm meaning what I say here. I think that's what he's doing. But it also tells us something about our giving. I think we have to ask ourselves is, do we always give what's easy, or sometimes do we give out of a real sacrifice? You know, I mean something like this. And again, um, we won't always follow the New Testament principles of giving. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. But, but, you know, maybe you've been saving for something. I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you. But you've been saving for something, and you've got enough money put away, and you're kind of going, oh, I'm almost there. I got this. And then Corey Nichols comes up here, like he did last Sunday, and he talks about destiny rescue. And your heart gets touched. And you go, I, I, I've got to help here, but I don't have anything except what I was saving for this thing I wanted. And 
if the Holy Spirit leads, you take that and you say, you know what, this is more important. That's a sacrificial giving. That's what David's doing here. You see, David built the altar, but everything else he did there was his idea. And I think he shows us that it's important sometimes to say, no, I don't want to do what's just easy. I want to make sure this costs me something. And like I said, and we don't, you may have noticed, we don't talk much about giving in this church. We probably talk about it too little, to be honest with you, but it only happens when it comes up in the scriptures that we teach. That's when we talk about giving. So I want to remind you that we should always use New Testament principles when it comes to giving. What does the New Testament teach us? We should give as we've purposed in our heart. Whatever you've purposed in your heart, the Bible says, then give that. It doesn't say anything about 10%, 20%, 90%. It says what you've purposed in your heart to give, then give that. It also tells us that we're not to give grudgingly, but cheerfully. If we can't give it cheerfully, God doesn't want it. He doesn't want you putting it in there and going, mm, man, you're lucky if I have enough to eat this week. <laughs> no, just keep it. Go eat. The other principle, and I think this is one that we don't often follow, is we should give as the Lord prospers us. So when the Lord does prosper you, you should give more. You should go back to the Lord and go, okay, Lord, you're giving me more. What would you have me do? Purpose in your heart and then you know, renew what you're giving and say, I'm going to give a little bit more. That's the New Testament principles. I can give you the verses there. I can do that if you want. But that's what the New Testament teaches. But I think here, that again, that we should learn one more thing. And that is, let's not give God our leftovers. When we're purposing in our heart, let's not just give him our leftovers and go, okay, I pay all my bills, and then this is what I got left over. No. Determine it first, what you want to give God. That's all. And, and do it by being led by the Spirit. Don't, don't let other people pressure you into things, you know, no matter how they sound, no matter how spiritual they sound when they go back to Malachi and tell you you're robbing God. Okay, that's Old Testament. Sorry. No, let the Spirit lead you, but also ask the Lord, you know, Lord, I don't want to just give you my leftovers. I want to give, you, give to you sacrificially as well and, and let him speak to you and then just do what he tells you to do. That's all you need to do. So here we see sin, repentance, and consequence in David's life. Cirque. But you know, there's one thing that I didn't talk about here, and I purposely saved this to the last. And that is, you're going, okay, so if I sin, which I shouldn't do what David did, I shouldn't take things in my own hand, I should trust God and just follow him and do what he says. Okay, but I blew it. So now I know that I need to repent, but I also know that it's very likely I'm going to have consequences for my sin. Are we clear on that? When you sin, you're going to have consequences. The Bible says... That if you sow to the flesh, you will reap the whirlwind. If you sow to the Spirit, then you'll reap the Spirit. Okay? When we sin, there's going to be consequences. And I will say this. I was just sharing this recently. That sometimes God allows the full measure of consequence. But sometimes in this story here, was it the full measure yet? Because remember, God stopped the angel as he was going to Jerusalem. I don't know why. But he did. Could there have been more consequences? Was somebody praying, Lord, would you lighten the consequences for us? You see, that's another principle. When you do sin and you do repent and you're suffering consequences, it's a good thing to ask God, Lord, would you lighten the consequences? I get it. 
I understand what I did. I, I know it was wrong. I'm turning to you. Would you lighten the consequences? There's nothing wrong with doing that. That doesn't mean necessarily that God will. But he might. Isn't it worth a try? Yeah. It, it might be that God is relinquishes like he does here or relents like he does here. So pray for that. But then be prepared to accept the fact that there are natural consequences for sinful actions. Not just one that God assigns to us in a way like he did here, but there are just natural consequences for our sin. You know, if you treat somebody badly, they're going to be upset at you. That's a natural consequence of your sin, right? So ask God to lighten them, but be prepared to say, Lord, your will be done in my life. I'm just going to give an example. We have a little time here. I'm just going to give an example. Over, over my life, I've had periods of time where I have not been very good with finances. I'm going to just freely admit it. So if you come in for counseling in my office and you want financial advice, I'm going to send you somewhere else. Okay? Or I'm going to tell you what I did wrong and say, please don't do what I did. That's about it. And, you know, there was one point in time when, when uh, you know, I was having to dig myself out of a debt situation. And look, I prayed, God, would you just take care of this? And I promise I will not get myself into this situation again. And I could say very clearly, I could hear very clearly from the Lord, no, you're going to work your way out of it. And I'm like, yeah, I know, because if I don't have to work my way out of it, I'll probably just do it again, right? Yeah, that's right. I know you. I made you. I know what you're like. And so I had to work really hard. And I had to take a little bit of time, and the Lord taught me things through that. And I'm thankful that he did. But there's other times in my life where I've done something and I've asked for lesser consequences and it seems like that's happened. So do that. But we have left one thing out of this whole equation and I saved it for last so that you can walk out here tonight with a real bright spot. You see, it's important to remember that even though we're going to suffer consequences, there is always forgiveness for our sin. There is always forgiveness for our sin. When you've come to Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have already been forgiven in terms of your salvation and you can restore your relationship with God. How's it do? Well, Galatians 6, uh, 7 and 8 says this. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Very simple consequences for what you do. But we balance that with 1 John 1, 9 that says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, we have to balance the fact that we're going to get consequences with the other fact that we are already forgiven in terms of our salvation and God will always forgive us when we come to him in repentance, asking for forgiveness, and he will restore our relationship to him as though we had not sinned. Do you understand that? Why is that so important? It's so important because we don't want to do what David did a long time before with Bathsheba and try to justify or cover our sin. We want to go to him immediately and get that relationship restored. You see, that's what David learned. He knew God would forgive him. He knew he was going to get consequences, but he knew God would forgive him. And he wanted that relationship restored. He didn't want to go like he was before when he went for a year and it was so bad his bones were hurting and he was groaning and he was miserable. No, 
He wanted his relationship restored. He had learned his lesson. I go to God immediately, and I ask for forgiveness from God. I repent. I turn away from what I did. And then I accept the consequences I've given, along with praying for less consequences if God is willing. Isn't that an awesome thing to know? You know, I would say the lesson here, first of all, is let's make sure that we're not taking things into our own hands when we shouldn't be. Let's make sure we're trusting God. But let's make sure when we blow it that we repent. As soon as we realize it, we don't justify. We don't hide. We turn to God and say, I'm sorry, God. Restore my relationship with you and receive that wonderful forgiveness that he has. Let's pray. So Heavenly Father, just thank you for this evening. I thank you for your word. Lord, here we are. We have finished the book of 2 Samuel, 24 chapters. And Lord, uh, I know there are many people in this building that have heard every word of every chapter. And that's so awesome. And you have taught us so much. You know, I think of those who say, well, you shouldn't spend so much time in the Old Testament um, because we're living under uh, grace, not the law. But Lord, the Old Testament is not just the law, and we need to know what the law is. But Lord, we see your grace and your mercy right here in this chapter. We see the fact that despite David's mistakes, you love him, and you love him so much, Lord, that you said his throne will last forever and ever. And we know, Lord, that you'll keep that promise. And Lord, we know that you'll keep your promises to us. That when you have promised us that you will forgive us when we turn to you in repentance when we have sinned, that you will forgive us and our relationship with you will be restored. We can bank on that promise, Lord. You love us that much. So I just thank you so much for that. And I thank you for each one that's here tonight, um, their commitment to learning the word of God. And I pray, Lord, that we will not just be hearers of the word, but as we are studying in James, Lord, that we will be doers of this word. But we can only do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. So I pray for each one that's here tonight, Lord, that you would fill each one with your Holy Spirit daily and that they would just walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. And Lord, if there's anyone here tonight that has not made a commitment to you, I pray that you would be just touching their heart right now, speaking to them, Lord, and uh, bringing them and drawing them close to you. And I pray that they would surrender their heart to you tonight. And if that's you tonight, then just while we're in this time of prayer, you can just speak to God right now. And you can just say, um, God, I, I get this now. I understand that, that I've sinned against you. And, and Lord, I need you, Jesus, as my Savior. And I want to invite you to come into my life tonight to forgive me of my sin and that I might have an eternal relationship with you. Would you do that for me tonight? And if you do that, then you can be assured by God's word that he will enter into your life, that you'll be sealed by the Holy Spirit, and that you have the ability now to resist the sin that we've been talking about by the power of the Spirit. So God, again, thank you for all that you've taught us tonight. Would you just continue to minister to us daily, Lord? Would you continue to show us how much you love us, Lord? We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.